Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Back in 1934, music critic Francis Toy prefaced his new biography of Rossini in bracingly frank terms. To the best of my belief, there is no demand whatever for a life of Rossini in English. Supply, however, sometimes creates demand, and Rossini as a figure is so fascinating that people may eventually wonder why they were content to remain for so long in ignorance of his extraordinary career. Twenty years later, Toy wrote a new preface for the reissue and had to acknowledge that his original skepticism had been misplaced. In fact, the Rossini revival of mid-century was generating an enthusiasm beyond his wildest hopes. Delighted that he was now able to see actual performances of many Rossini works that he had previously known only through scores, Toy specifically called out La Cinerentola as having joined the Barber of Seville in public esteem and declared with satisfaction that all the overtures have passed from tentative to definite inclusion in the normal concert repertoire. In a word, Rossini was back, and his star has been shining steadily for audiences right up to the present day. According to the online data source OperaBase, which has been documenting operatic activity around the world for the last 25 years, Rossini is number four in the top 10 most performed composers around the world this season. True, he didn't come close to matching the big three, perennial favorites Mozart, Verdi, and Puccini, but hey, he still bested Donizetti, Wagner, Bizet, Handel, Strauss, and Tchaikovsky. And while Rossini's juggernaut hit, The Barber of Seville, represents the majority of these productions, La Cenerentola remains a popular choice, with dozens of stagings this season, spanning the globe from Los Angeles to Tokyo. Which is darn impressive for an opera that was something of a fluke, the result of an 11th hour creative brainstorm. Here's the scenario, December 1816. Rossini rushes back to Rome, having committed to a new opera for the Teatro Valle. He's running way behind with the commission, which is supposed to be staged the next month. The life of a successful opera composer in early 19th century Italy could be brutal, a punishing routine of itinerant living and impossible deadlines. And 1816 had been an especially crazy year for Rossini, with premieres of three new operas, The Barber of Seville, La Gazzetta, and Otello. And by the way, he's just 24 years old. So once in Rome, Rossini was greeted with very bad news. The libretto that he had been counting on had been rejected by the papal censors as being too naughty. Rossini quickly found a new librettist, Jacopo Ferretti, who, after scouting around a bit for a narrative that would appeal to the morally sensitive audiences of Rome, settled on a version of the Cinderella story. The title of the new opera was to be La Cenerentola, ossia la bontà in trionfo, Cinderella or goodness triumphant. 
Now, there were at least three published Cinderella variants that Ferretti could have used as sources for his libretto. First, Giambattista Basile's Cinerentola, which came out in 1634 and is the earliest known published version in Europe. Then about 60 years later came Charles Perrault's Cendrillon, which introduced most of the magical elements still found in popular Cinderella retellings today, like Disney's classic animated film. You've got the fairy godmother, the glass slippers, the pumpkin carriage, etc. Finally, Ferretti might have known about the more contemporary version by the Brothers Grimm, Aschenputtel, which had been published in 1812, just a few years earlier. But Ferretti didn't refer directly to any of these well-known versions. He took a shortcut, stealing inspiration, literally, from two existing librettos for very recent Cinderella operas. The earlier of the two operas was Nicolas Isouard's Cendrillon, which premiered in 1810 at the Opera Comique and was still very popular. The libretto for Cendrillon seems to have been plagiarized in translation for an Italian opera by composer Stefano Pavesi, Agatina or la virtù premiata, Agatha or virtue rewarded, which appeared at the Teatro alla Scala in Milan in 1814, just two years earlier. Since time was of the essence and copyright laws were pretty much non-existent at the time, I mean, Italy's not even a unified country yet, Ferretti followed a common practice and based his script on these ready-made sources. In fact, most of the character names in Rossini's La Cenerentola correspond exactly to those in Pavese's opera. The princely Don Ramiro, his tutor, Alidoro, his valet, Dandini, the nasty stepfather, Don Magnifico, and the stepsisters, Tisbe and Clorinda. Ferretti did change the main character's given name from Agatina to Angelina, but both characters are known mostly by the nickname Cenerentola. With a workable libretto in his pocket, Rossini raced to get the score ready as quickly as possible. According to Ferretti, and we have no reason to doubt him in this case, Rossini wrote La Cenerentola in a little over three weeks during January 1817 because the premiere took place at the end of that month. It should be no surprise that the composer was forced to cut a few corners. For the premiere version of La Cenerentola, Rossini relied on another composer, we think it was Luca Agolini, to create the recitatives, which Rossini never bothered to update. And three of the numbers, Alidoro's aria, which Rossini later replaced with a much grander aria of his own making, the chorus announcing the mystery woman at the ball, which he retained, and an aria for Clorinda that is generally cut today. Rossini also borrowed from himself. He used music from one of Count Almaviva's arias in The Barber of Seville for Cenorentola's final rondo, Non più mesta, and he recycled the overture from La Gazzetta. Here's an excerpt from this delightful curtain opener, which, like all Rossini overtures, highlights his gift for great tunes, punchy rhythmic play, and of course, his signature orchestral crescendos.
La Cenerentola premiered on January 25th, 1817, eliciting a rather tepid response from its Roman audiences. But Rossini is quoted as having great faith in the merit of his Cinderella opera, telling a despondent Ferretti, before carnival is done, everyone will be in love with it. Before a year is up, it will be sung in cities along the whole length of Italy, and in two years, it will please France and astound the English. Impresarios will fight over it, and even more, so will prima donnas. Rossini's prediction was pretty much on point. Even a contemporary naysayer like Stendhal, Rossini's earliest biographer, had to admit that the opera enjoyed broad and enthusiastic reception. Stendhal was a bit of a snob, writing that whenever he went to see La Cenerentola, he resigned himself to rubbing shoulders with the hoi polloi. But he also recognized that his was a minority opinion, remarking that the first time he saw the work in Trieste, Italy, it would have been hard to remember a finer production of any opera. Such, in any case, was the verdict given in Trieste, where the public kept La Cenerentola running for a hundred performances on end, instead of the 30 for which the prima donna, Madama Giuditta Pasta, had bargained. La Cenerentola lost some of its glow in the early part of the 20th century. But thankfully, opera-loving fairy godmothers and godfathers around the world, including significantly the prima donnas who sang the marvelous title role, rescued La Cenerentola from music history's ash bucket and brought it back to the ball in style. It's an opera that's easy to love. Rossini brilliantly leveraged his gift for abundant and appealing musical ideas to create memorable characters across the board, even given that the roles generally adhere to the standard character types for Italian comic opera of the time. The stepfather, Don Magnifico, for instance, is your typical bad guy basso buffo, whose vocal stock in trade is rapid fire patter and bloviating with delusions of grandeur. This voice type comes through clearly from Don Magnifico's very first aria, where he scolds his daughters for waking him from a marvelous dream. Si sentiano per di solito le campagne a dindonar, dindon, dindon. Ding dong, ding dong. Col cici ciuciu di botto mi veniste a risvegliar. Col cici ciuciu di botto mi veniste a risvegliar. Col cici ciuciu di botto mi faceste risvegliar. Col cici ciuciu, col cici ciuciu, col cici ciuciu, col cici ciuciu, mi faceste, mi faceste, mi faceste risvegliar. Dandini, Don Ramiro's valet, mixes the lyric qualities of a basso cantante with a generous dash of basso buffo, the perfect combination for a high-level servant who must also be able to pass as his princely boss, which Dandini does in his entrance aria. Addressing the stepsisters, he adopts the highly embellished bel canto style that is the prince's natural idiom, 
But the valet's poetic abilities are limited. Falling back on the cliche of a bee among flowers, he concludes a little clumsily, saying that he's looking for the perfect boccone. Poetically, we might translate this as morsel, but it's more literally a big mouthful. Dandini drops the disguise and goes full buffo patter at the end of this aria when he speaks in a winking aside to the audience, predicting that the commedia is going to end badly for Don Magnifico and his two daughters. Son tutte paffa, son tutte paffa. Marchidio della nostra commedia, che tragedia qui nasce dovrà. Marchidio della nostra commedia, che tragedia qui nasce dovrà. Marchidio della nostra commedia, che tragedia qui nasce dovrà. Marchidio della nostra commedia, che tragedia qui nasce dovrà. Marchidio della nostra commedia, che tragedia, che tragedia qui nasce dovrà. Another bass role, Alidoro, the sage tutor of the prince, takes the place of Perrault's fairy godmother character. Though not indicated explicitly as magical, his name, Alidoro, means golden wings, so it does suggest he's something of a guardian angel on earth. And in fact, when Rossini wrote his own aria for Alidoro, remember he had outsourced the original, he shifted the tone from rational philosopher to something more pastoral. The bass range lends appropriate gravitas to the role, and especially to his grand aria, when Alidoro assures Cenerentola that the good Lord above has been watching her and will never abandon goodness. Rossini begins the aria with a little word painting, 
Alidoro's held note in his higher range, an E flat above middle C, that evokes the heavenly realm. Sisters, Clorinda and Tisbe, Rossini exploits elements of two common vocal types in comic opera. The soubrette, lively and often flirty, a lighter voice with not much coloratura, and the lyric soprano, a little more vocal heft, but still on the lighter and brighter side. As I mentioned earlier, Clorinda's aria is often cut, and Tisbe doesn't sing an aria, so we hear the stepsisters mostly as part of ensembles and action scenes, their voices adding the necessary soprano ping. And while they can't sound as unattractive as their behavior is, it's an opera after all, Rossini withholds the usual musical charm often associated with soubrette and lyric roles. Take, for example, the scene in which Dandini, still posing as noble Don Ramiro, tells the stepsisters that he will marry one of them and give the other to his valet, the disguised Ramiro. The ladies immediately drop their simpering politesse and squawk with classist outrage. Sono voci di amorosa, non si può dire, non si può dire. 
Rossini made his Don Romero, the opera's romantic male lead, a tenor di grazia, a graceful and agile voice type perfectly suited to bel canto fioritura, all those rapid runs of notes and other embellishments of the melody. Don Romero's social status, his moral integrity, and his central place in the rescue of Cenerentola require an appropriately charismatic and impressive musical style. For Romero's big solo number in Act Two, Si ritrovarla io giuro, yes, I swear I will find her again, Rossini uses a structural framework that he had already perfected in earlier works, the double aria. As this label suggests, such arias are in two parts. A slower, more lyric section, the cantabile, followed by a faster and usually more technically brilliant cabaletta. Other sections might be added, like an introductory tempo d'attacco, or an inserted tempo di mezzo, a middle section between the cantabile and the cabaletta. In fact, Si ritrovarla begins with a tempo d'attacco, as Don Ramiro passionately vows to locate the mysterious woman at the ball. cantabile section that follows, Ramiro's thoughts turn tenderly to the unknown beauty who captured his heart, imagining how he will hold her close. Rossini adds the chorus here, a quiet murmur as the courtiers marvel at the change that has come over their lord. Finally, Ramiro launches into the Allegro Vivace Cabaletta. Though his heart is filled with both hope and uncertainty of success, he is determined to follow love's lead, and his men enthusiastically commit to looking everywhere for the mystery woman. Ha <laughs> 
Of course, the heart of this opera is Cenerentola herself. For his title role, Rossini returned to a voice type, the contralto, and a particular singer, Geltrude Righetti, who had also created the role of Rosina in The Barber of Seville. Rossini's decision to write these two prima donna roles for the lower female vocal range has endeared him to generations of contraltos and hardy mezzos who, when they aren't doing pants roles or parts originally written for castrati, often find themselves in the dramatic margins as mothers, nurses, and servants. But Rossini puts them center stage, spotlit and magnificent. However, making Cenerentola a contralto presented a special challenge since the part has to compete with two extroverted sopranos, the stepsisters. Practically, Rossini needed to make sure that Cenerentola's lower tessitura range didn't disappear in loud ensembles. But dramatically, he also needed to create a vocal character who could effectively convey both authentic innocence and bel canto-style grandeur. Tellingly, Cenerentola introduces herself to us not with a showy aria, but by singing a relatively simple song. Of course, it's an opera, everyone sings, but this is different. Cenerentola is actually singing within the context of the narrative. She is singing to herself for pleasure as a distraction from a life of thankless menial labor. Her song, Cera una volta un re, Once Upon a Time There Was a King, sounds like a wistful folk tune or maybe a lullaby. And though she doesn't know it yet, the words foreshadow her own destiny. It becomes apparent that Cenerentola sings this song all the time, so much that her stepsisters are sick of hearing it and begin to shout at her, enough already! But she doesn't back down, responding, lasciatemi cantar, let me sing. And at the word cantar, Cenerentola gives us a glimpse of her inner bel canto diva, the first vocal flourish of the opera. Cenerentola, 
When Don Ramiro and Cenerentola meet for the first time, with Romero pretending to be a valet, they sing a duet, through which Rossini signals their compatibility and also Cenerentola's natural nobility of spirit. While it is fairly common for duets to present parallel musical statements, one character responding to another with the same melody, the formula does something special in this particular dramatic context. Don Ramiro and Cinerentola are not talking to each other in their duet. Instead, as they sneak shy glances at one another, they express their private inner thoughts. And through the magic of opera, we are allowed to hear these. Unknowingly echoing each other, they show us how well they are matched, musically and otherwise. Critics and scholars often remark on Rossini's innovative mixing of serious and comic musical styles in La Cenerentola, and the title character is arguably the most inventive in that respect. She is not above being swept up in the madcap ensembles that are such a Rossini trademark. In one patter-filled passage in the cut time stretta of the introductions to Act I, the stepsisters are both calling for her at the same time. And her harried response, which recalls a similar text sung by Figaro in the Barber of Seville, captures her frantic dilemma as she is pulled in different directions. <laughs> Ma 
Shortly, of course, Cenerentola escapes from her life of abuse and servitude, her goodness triumphing over the banality and cruelty of her stepfather and his daughters. Looking at the gathered crowd at her wedding to Don Ramiro, Cenerentola rewards them and us with her only real prima donna aria, a multisectional rondo, which is no less lovely for being partly borrowed. The concluding faster section, Non più mesta, is a reworking of the final cabaletta that Rossini wrote for Count Almaviva in The Barber of Seville. Yet, I would suggest that the spectacular music is more moving coming from the kind former housemaid than the privileged count, who will, in any case, become a cad in the sequel, The Marriage of Figaro. Let's listen to a luxuriant excerpt from Cenerentola's final rondo section, Non più mesta. Non più read some traditional fairy tales, you know that they don't always end well for everyone, especially those who hurt the hero or heroine. But this is a Rossini comic opera, so there are pardons, celebrations, and musical storms provided by the orchestra that clear away for the sunny ending. Something that Toy, the Rossini biographer, wrote has stuck with me. He notes how Rossini's Europe was not unlike his own in 1934. Both exhausted after devastating conflicts, the Napoleonic Wars in Rossini's time and World War I in toys. The author suggests that Rossini's music offers the perfect tonic for such exhaustion. Strikingly, opera scholars Carolyn Abate and Roger Parker expressed a similar sentiment in their history of opera, which was published closer to our time. They conclude that however cynical we might sometimes feel, we can, quote, relish anew the ambiguities and manic escapism, the energy and ornament and sheer musical allure that Rossini so unfailingly brought to operatic drama. With these words in mind, go and have a healthy cup of Rossini's mood-enhancing art. And thank you so much for joining us for this pre-concert exploration of La Cenerentola. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Thank you.